Here's James's point. It's not a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of how clever you are. It's a matter of the life. It's a matter of how good you are. He's not interested simply in what you say. He's also interested in what you do. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our study in the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And today, Pastor Carl outlines that if we have true, genuine, and heavenly wisdom, it ought to show in both our demeanor and in our behavior. Let's join Pastor Carl to find out why. To the things that you do to merit salvation where the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to people, brings us to the substitutionary death of Christ. And so he quotes the prophet Isaiah here in verse 19. You'll see the textual change in all caps, showing you it's an Old Testament quotation, in this case from Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Then he asks in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For a sense in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In fact, he, he gives a summary statement of God's assessment of the world's way of thinking in chapter 3. In chapter 3, in verse 19, across the page, or you might have to flip it in some of your Bibles, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. What a contrast between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. Man's wisdom is foolishness to God. God's wisdom is foolishness to man. Man's wisdom comes from reason. God's wisdom comes from divine revelation. Worldly wisdom will lead you to nothing. In fact, it will lead you to an eternity without the living God, where God's wisdom will allow you to endure life forever. And so notice in verse 19 here in chapter 3, he now quotes Job, for it is written, he, God, is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now hold that thought and go back here to the book of James chapter 3. James is asking a penetrating question. Are you a wise person? And then he would simply respond, don't tell me, show me. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. 
So James is saying that it's not just a person's words, but a person's works that show whether or not he has genuine wisdom. And if you have the real wisdom, if you have heavenly wisdom, then it ought to express itself in at least two ways. And so now he gives two very concrete examples of a man who is truly wise because it will be reflected both in demeanor and in its behavior. So let's first consider genuine wisdom is seen in its behavior in its behavior. Look again now in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds. Now, if you're using the old King James, it does not say good behavior. It says good conversation. Because in the 17th century, the word conversation referred to one's lifestyle. So back in the 1600s, you might say, he has a good conversation, meaning he's a good man or she's a good woman. The new King James renders it good conduct, and this is why there's a need for a modern literal translation of the Bible. But this word that is translated here, good behavior, is found actually 13 times in the New Testament. And in every instance, it does not refer to your talk, but to your walk. But let me just say as a side note, our walk is not to be separated from our talk. So you can see through the etymology of the word how it gravitated to its current day meaning. But don't miss the point. If you want to see if a person is wise, Start by looking at his deeds because real wisdom will express itself in good behavior or as some translations say, good conduct. When the Lord Jesus' life is summarized in Acts chapter 10, it's recorded, he went about doing good. And so here's James's point. It's not a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of how clever you are. It's a matter of the life. It's a matter of how good you are. He's not interested simply in what you say. He's also interested in what you do. And so the first mark of a wise person is not how high your IQ is or how sharp or keen your sense of humor is or how impressive one's delivery is or how many Bible studies they attend or how many languages they know. No, the real mark of wisdom is good behavior, good conduct. God links the two repeatedly in Scripture. Just read the book of Proverbs. And many of you, you're new to the faith and you maybe have been challenged to read the chapter in Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So this is the 14th, so you'd read Proverbs 14. But as you read through Proverbs, you see that habitually God contrasts the way of the wise with the way of a fool. And so Proverbs describes a wise man as one who will flee far from sexual immorality. He will describe a wise man as one who works hard, and like the ant, he stores up and he provides for his own. He will say a wise man is one who wins souls. Repeatedly, true wisdom is linked to, to a certain kind of behavior. And so sometimes we say even, uh, oh, he got out of jail for good behavior. Well, not exactly the same thing, but we're basically saying he kept his nose clean. But again, what I want you to see is he is saying a wise person, if he's really wise, 
It's going to show up not just with his words, but his works. Now, I see some people, and interesting, this word behavior, let me just say parenthetically, is a, a Greek word that returns, that refers to someone who, who gets away, but he returns back. He gets away, but he returns back. There, there, is, there is a commitment to trying to stay close to the Lord. I was watching this lady in my neighborhood, and uh, that's an unusual leash, and, you know, the dog would go out and then get out so far, and it just kind of gets sucked right back in. And uh, at first, I wasn't sure who was walking who for a second, but they have these, you know, fancy uh, leashes that they have. Well, the concept behind this word is that um, it's someone who is not straining against the leash, but trying to respond to the leash. When God shows them that they're off a little bit, they want to pull back. They are an individual that is not on the world's leash, but is on God's leash and trying to walk in good behavior. Now, James has already said we all stumble in many ways. But this is a person who habitually yields to the authority of Scripture. They're trying to walk as close to the master as they can. So, first, there's genuine wisdom as seen in behavior. Secondly, genuine wisdom as seen in its demeanor. Let's think about, for just a moment, genuine wisdom as seen in its demeanor. Look at verse 13 now. Again, I'll read the whole verse all the way to the end this time. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So here in verse 13, James speaks of our deeds being done in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, this word for gentleness is the same word that's used in James 1.21 that was translated humble. And so we are exhorted to receive God's word in that verse in humility in James 1.21. But it's interesting that while there are hundreds and hundreds of verses that really describe the life of Christ, there's just one place where he describes himself. Most of you know it. It's found in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word James uses. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus used this same word in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle. The old King James says the meek. Most translations today say blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. When we hear the word gentleness, sometimes we uh, associate it with meekness. And meekness is typically associated in most people's minds today, at least, with weakness. And so we think of some, you know, Sam Milktoast that is spineless and, you know, kind of spiritless kind of individual. But that's not how it's used in Scripture. In fact, it's used in just the opposite way. It was used outside of the New Testament of a horse that was high-spirited, but had been brought under control through a harness. It was used outside of Scripture of a teacher who was 
powerful and dogmatic, but at the same time, he would not get angry with his students. It was used by the Greeks of a, of a gentle, warm fire versus a fire that was destructive and out of control. It was used of a gentle breeze where there's just the right amount of wind at just the right, for the right amount of time, making it very pleasant versus a breeze that is out of control that becomes a tornado or a hurricane. It was used in medicine of a doctor who gave just the right dose to bring about healing rather than disaster or death. And so James is describing not some weak person, but a strong person whose strength has been harnessed. It's typified, of course, in the Lord Jesus. There on the cross, Peter will remind us, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. You want to see someone with power under control, just look at Golgotha. He laid his life down. He could have called legions of angels from heaven but he yielded himself. Paul will say in Philippians that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, same word, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And of course, his example is prefaced by these words, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there are some people who can accomplish even a good deed but in the process, they destroy everyone who's in their path. And one of the problems sometimes with a new believer is that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And in their zeal, they, they want to win their friends and their family to Christ. And in the process, they just crush them. They don't do it with gentleness. Peter would tell us, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a decision to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you, and yet he says with gentleness and reverence. Likewise, Paul said to young Timothy, his protege in the faith, his young pastor whom he had discipled in his last will and testament in 2 Timothy 2, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, same word, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The Lord's bondservant, he must be kind, patient when wronged, with gentleness, and it's only this kind of wise behavior that can potentially keep people from the snare of the devil. Listen, you can have all the facts, but if you don't have the wisdom on how to share those facts, you can do a lot of great harm. So it's not just your deeds, it's deeds with gentleness, gentleness and wisdom. So true wisdom, genuine wisdom, is both good and it's gentle. Now, remember here in verse 13, he began with a question. Are you a wise person? And his answer is very simple. If you are demonstrating power under control, and the person who may call himself wise and understanding is indeed 
describing himself rightly if these two visible characteristics are true. Good behavior and gentleness. Now, that's the value of genuine wisdom. Let's go a little bit further and look at the vices of worldly wisdom now in verses 14 through 16. The vices of worldly wisdom. And here, again, we find two critical characteristics. First, he underscores that earthly wisdom will be seen in its motives. So, let's consider earthly wisdom as its seen in its motives. Look now, if you will, at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. So there are two basic motives that drive a person who is unwise, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And these are motives that are hidden in the heart. Jealousy and selfish ambition are issues of the heart. Biblically speaking, your heart is the place that represents the essence of who you are. And that's why Paul can tell the Romans that when you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. But the heart is not only the place where faith resides. The Bible equally affirms that the heart is the place where sin resides. And so Jesus in Matthew 15 says, in describing the origin of sin, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Now, let's for a moment remove the intervening vices that are described and read it. But if you have in your heart, you see, critical to our understanding of what James is referring here is the verb to have, because it's a verb tense in the original that describes someone who is harboring and fostering, who is nursing as a way of life, either one of these two vices. And so he mentions here bitter jealousy. And this describes a person who, though even though their hands are full, when they look at other people, there's a yearning, a jealousy to have what they have. And so, again, it's an issue of motive. Now, no one goes around and says, well, typically anyway, I'm a jealous person. But a person, of course, who wants to be a leader can't be driven by selfish ambition. If they are a person who is habitually threatened by the blessings and the giftedness of other people, they're not qualified to be a leader. They want to identify those people and loose them with their gifts so they can use them for the kingdom. Now notice the second motive that's closely associated beyond bitter jealousy. He also mentions selfish ambition. And again, both of these are in the heart. They may not openly admit it. They may not come around and say, my ambition is get to get to the top. No, no one really says that. Now, you might be asking yourself, do Christians do these kinds of things? Do they contend with each other? 
Do they compare, you know, business cards and job titles? Do they take note of neighborhoods and automobiles and houses? Do they compare parenting or maybe grandparenting skills? Are there rivalries in the church for prominence? Do Christians try to get their own way? And of course, the answer is yes. That's who he's writing to. Yes, the nature of selfish ambition is rooted in the heart. It's the desire to be seen. It's the desire and the drive to be first. It may look like a spiritual zeal, but it's someone who's on an ego trip. The Pharisees, if you remember, they were spiritually zealous people. But when Jesus summarized what they were like, he said they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Oh, we should be zealous for our service in the Lord, but not to exalt self and to rob God of his glory and his honor, but to exalt the living God. In addition to its motives, earthly wisdom also is seen in its character. It's seen in its character. Such impure motives produce three characteristics that are spelled out here now in verse 15. I have them underlined in my Bible. This wisdom, what he just described in verse 14, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. First, he tells us it is earthly, which simply means that the wisdom of this world shuts out and it limits the focus of what happens in this life to this life only. It is earthbound. It views everything from a horizontal perspective instead of from a vertical perspective. Do you think our governmental leaders are asking God, what would please you? What does Holy Scripture say? No, from within a fallen heart, they're saying, what do we want? And sadly, this spirit, more and more, has entered into the evangelical churches in America. And if I get another piece of literature or email telling me how to market the church, I think I'm going to literally throw up. Sermons are no longer biblio-centered. They are man-centered, both in their length and in their content so as not to offend people. Sometimes I think we have too many people, and I say, Lord, I'll just preach a little bit longer, we'll find out who's really interested. It's earthbound. And so we dropped Moody Bible Institute and Moody Radio because they said it's okay to smoke, drink, and gamble in moderation. That's earthbound wisdom. No wonder God has disciplined that institution. It's very, very sad to see a movement that God once used mightily, and it could happen to us if we do not keep our guard up. There were some great churches in this very town once that sent missionaries to preach the gospel to foreign lands that today are dead what he writes here is almost as surprising as when earlier in James 2 and verse 19, he speaks of demons who have faith. Remember that? The demons believe that God is one. 
Demons have faith and the world has wisdom. The problem is, is that the object of demonic faith is not the living God and the object of worldly wisdom is not the revelation of God and so it's doomed to fail. The wisdom of this world might sound good and right and logical. Twice over in Proverbs, Solomon will write, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's not many times when the identical verse is repeated in the Bible, much less in Proverbs, but this is one because God wants to underscore its truth. Earth views life from the perspective of the here and now. God views life from the perspective of eternity. He takes the long view. He takes the kingdom view. This wisdom is not that which comes down from the above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. You see the second word there, natural. Sukikos, we get our word psychology, our word psyche from it. The old King James renders it sensual, but today the word sensual has a nuance of eroticism to it but it didn't in the 17th century. Sensual referred simply to someone operating out of their senses. And that's why we say natural here. It's the way people naturally respond. In Jude, in verse 19, he tells us a natural man is one who is devoid of the Holy Spirit, and he creates divisions. Paul, likewise, will write to the Corinthians and say, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. That's why Jesus said, neither can a man enter or see, comprehend wisdom, the kingdom of God, until he is born from above. But the natural man just operates on the basis of his senses. And until we are made alive in Christ, he may talk about spiritual things like that lady yesterday about Lent, but the more she spoke, how obvious it was she had never met the Lord. And we prayed for her. We're praying for her conversion. Obviously, her husband married an unbeliever. And I don't know the whole history behind it. But, you know, people can have their spiritual experiences and all these other things. And when you preach the gospel, they take offense. Paul will say, in lieu of worldly wisdom, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we read it already, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Many of the Jews in Paul's day could not get past the crucifixion because their Messiah was not going to be crucified. They just wanted the picture of Messiah where he would rule and reign with a rod of iron. But that's the second coming of the Messiah. And Gentiles could not get past the fact that a God could somehow at the hands of men die. That was a total absurdity to them. So for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But today, 
not wanting to be offensive all across America. We are preaching Christ the moral man. We are preaching Christ the ideal teacher. We are preaching Christ the positive thinker. We are preaching Christ the good example. They are preaching a different Jesus, to use Paul's words, a Jesus that basically allows you to get whatever you want and allow you to live however you choose. And churches all across America are taking the gospel out of the gospel. To speak of someone who is bearing wrath and punishment because God is a God of wrath who will punish sin. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Remember, worldly wisdom will only lead you down a path to nothing. If you enjoy today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 008. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a very important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his message in the book of James. We hope that you will join us then as we continue to search the scriptures.